I had uh, shared with Jacob, you might have noticed our worship service was a one song short of what it normally is this morning. And I had shared with Jacob the reason for that was because I was concerned that the sermon I was going to bring to for you this morning was going to be a little longer than what I normally do. Well, that was the sermon that I planned on doing. And uh, I can always tell when I'm having trouble sleeping on a Friday night that God's got a different plan than I had. And fortunately, I had an hour I could uh, do some, make some changes uh, yesterday morning. And so I even had time to change it on your smartphone app. So uh, the notes are updated on that. But um, this might just be one of the shorter messages I ever preach. How many of you said, Hallelujah? <laughs> yeah. I've been, uh, I've been reading a book by an author whose name is Chad Walsh. Uh, it's not a, a, a normal book like I usually read. It's a, it's a book that I'm having to, to listen to. Um, I, don't know, I don't know what your, how, how your learning works, but I'm much more visual than I am audio, audio you know. And so I like to read books so that I can get the full meaning out of them, but there was a statement in this book that I've been listening to, uh, just the audio, that that caught my attention. And so I looked it up online, and I found the part that caught my attention in print, and I want to share it with you to begin this message this morning. Walsh writes in his book, millions of Christians live in a sentimental haze of vague piety with soft organ music trembling in the lovely light from stained glass windows. Their religion has become a pleasant thing of emotional quiver, divorced from intellect, divorced from the will, and a religion that demands little except lip service to a few harmless things that are dull and boring. He goes on to say, and this is the part that really caught my attention because I've been over the past few months, dealing with some challenges, uh, not challenges to my faith, but challenges from people who have been faith people who have now renounced their faith and, and either turned to atheism or agnosticism. And so that's why this next statement really caught my attention. He said, and I quote, I suspect that Satan has called off his attempt to convert people to agnosticism. After all, if a person travels far enough away from Christianity, he or she is always in danger of seeing it in perspective and deciding that it is, after all, true. Listen to this. It's much safer, in my opinion, and what I believe from Satan's point of view, To vaccinate a person with a mild case of Christianity so as to protect him from the real disease. Man. Why is it that so many followers of Jesus seem to have a mild case of Christianity? My 
thoughts this morning and my focus is this. Only faith in a worthwhile object can see us through difficult times. Why are we infected with such, many of us affected with such a mild case of Christianity? Well, I believe that the answer to that question is due to many followers of Jesus who have an inadequate and imprecise view of what faith is. might want to turn to Hebrews for just a second. It's not going to be my text, and you may, may not even need to turn it because when I start quoting the verse, you'll probably know that it's Scripture. But Hebrews chapter number 11 says this about faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Think of the magnitude of that statement. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. In other words, to live a life that's pleasing to God, it's absolutely essential that you have faith. Now, that may seem a a really plain and simple statement, but a mistake that is made often by people in regard to this matter of faith is that this thing we call faith is unique to Christianity. It's not. Faith has been sown by God into the very fabric of the human existence. You don't think so? Well, just consider this. It's impossible to live without faith. Impossible. Not only is it impossible to please God, it's impossible to live without faith. And here's the proof. I didn't notice any of you coming into the sanctuary this morning and examining your chair before you sat down in it. You just automatically committed yourself by faith to assuming that that chair was going to hold you when you made the effort to sit down in it. Most of you here this morning either came by car or by pickup truck. You slid into that car, you turned on the ignition, and away you went. Now, apart from George and maybe a few others of us here this morning, you didn't have a clue as to what goes on behind the scene after you turn the ignition on. You couldn't fully explain the process of what was happening. You just trusted it. You trusted the process that when you turned the key, the motor was going to run, and when the motor started running and you put it in drive, the car was going to move. You trusted it. Uh, Here's my favorite one. The last time you went to a doctor, he wrote out a prescription that you probably couldn't read and nobody else could either. But you took it to a pharmacist, and you gave it to the pharmacist, at which time they disappeared out of sight for a minute, which really makes me wonder what they're doing back there. But be that as it may, they eventually return with a little bottle with some instructions on it that tell you to take this twice a day. And so what do you do? You go home. And you follow the instructions and you take the medication. By faith, you do exactly what those instructions tell you to do. 
right? Faith is interwoven into the system that God has made. It's not unique to Christianity. We utilize faith every day. And I don't care if you're Christian, atheist, or agnostic. You exercise faith. Now, having said that, I want us to look this morning at a study in the life of our Lord. I I think this is, and excuse those of you who are advanced students in the Word, this is Christianity 101 this morning. I think we need to get back to that. Christianity 101. Because I think it deals with the kind of basic stuff that most of us are trying to get a handle on in our lives. Go with me to Mark chapter number 4. Mark chapter number 4. You come to verse number 35. It says, On that day when evening had come, Jesus told them, Let's cross over to the other side of the lake. So they left the crowd and took him along since he was already in the boat, and other boats were with him. A fierce windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking over the boat so that the boat was already being swamped. But Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on the cushion. So they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to die? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Silence, be still. The wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And then he said to them, why are you fearful? Now notice, I I didn't just read that. I put the emphasis on a certain word. Why are you fearful? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified and asked one another, who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. I think it's important that we look at the context of this passage because there's so much in these seven verses. The first verse, verse number 35, begins with the phrase, On that day. Now, if we're reading that, we really need to understand what that day was. So if you go back in the passage, I'm not going to take the time to do it. That day is the day that they had heard lectures on faith from the world's greatest teacher, Jesus himself. I mean, you look at, you look at Mark chapter number, 40, uh, chapter number 4. Jesus talks about a number of parables. He talks about the parable of the sower. He talks about the parable of the growing seed. He talks about the parable of the mustard seed. And he uses these parables to teach them and to illustrate to them what faith in God can do. So on that same day when they had heard and listened to that teaching, Jesus told them to get into the boat, let's go to the other side. Now, having said that again, I want to just say this to you. Faith is not learned by a lecture. Faith is not learned by a sermon. You don't learn about faith at Trinity Faith Church. You learn about faith in your life. You learn about faith in your comings and your goings. Those experiences are 
the best teacher. So faith is, is something that you learn as you go through life. And, and here comes Jesus after this long day of teaching. And he tells his disciples, let's go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And they leave the crowds behind. And Jesus' disciples get into their boat. And, and they take Jesus with them. And as they, along with, as the scripture tells us, other boats were sailing alongside them. They travel toward the other side of this sea And the Bible tells us that a furious storm comes up. And the waves of the sea kept breaking over the side of the boats to the point that the boats were nearly swamped by the the wind and the waves. And through all of this, Jesus, the great teacher, is in the stern sleeping on a cushion. Uh, just think about that. The boat is being tossed. Now, I remember, I, I, boy, I hate to say this after I'm get, just before I'm ready to get on an airplane. But about, uh, oh, it's probably been six or seven years ago. You see, Brenda always used to fly to California to pick up our grandsons and bring them home and take them back. And for whatever the reason, I don't remember what the reason was, it doesn't matter, this time it was me. And it was in July, and so I, I, was, I was on the plane, and between Denver and Wichita, there was a violent thunderstorm going on. And, and I felt as if I were like a, a marble in a tin can. The lightning would strike, and that plane would just go like this. And I, I, I don't have a strong stomach the way it is. And those grandsons, they, they even reminded me of it this last week where they were here. Hey, Grandpa, remember when you got sick on the plane? <laughs> Fact was, I was sick for a day after I got off of the plane. It was that bad. And so when I, when I think about that and I read a story like this, the, the boat is being tossed and turned, and Jesus is asleep. How could you sleep through something like that? Well, when you're in charge of the wind and the waves, sleep comes easy. But not for the disciples. I mean, think about it. The disciples wake Jesus up with this question. Jesus, don't you care that we're about to die? Now this... These disciples... They've grown up on this sea. They, they know what can happen on this sea of Galilee. They, they, they're experienced. They, they know exactly how storms like this one can come up in just a matter of minutes. The Sea of Galilee, it's, it's 690 feet below sea level, and, and it's surrounded by, by small hills with, with these narrow valleys that, that act like wind tunnels. And so when a, when a storm comes up, uh, the prevailing winds from the west blow across that, those mountains or hills, and, and it creates a, a downdraft. And so within a matter of, of, of five to ten minutes, you can have the most serious storm you've ever seen out on this small sea of Galilee. They've experienced it before. They, they, they've seen it many times. But apparently this one... Apparently this one 
was the storm to top all storms. Because these guys are convinced that their boat's not going to make it across the sea. They're convinced that they're going to die in this storm. Things are desperate for them. So they, they, they tell Jesus, Jesus, aren't you concerned? Don't you even care that we're going to die? And so Jesus, he gets up. And the translation that I learned it from, he says it this way. Peace, be still. Peace, be still. Silence, be still. Now, the original Greek translation of that verse that is translated in our scripture that we use for this morning says, be muzzled and remain so. Now think, here's what happens. At Jesus' direction, the wind dies down. Now, I'm not a sailor, nor have I spent much time on a boat of any kind, whether on a lake or on a sea. But I do know this. If the wind instantly becomes calm, that doesn't necessarily mean that the sea is going to become calm. On some larger oceans... The effect of the waves can last one or two days after the storm itself is calmed. But in this particular case, the winds calmed and instantly the sea became like glass. Completely still. And then Mark says in verse number 40 that Jesus said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? The Greek language, you need to know something about it. The Greek language is great for communicating a, a thought or an idea. And in order to emphasize that, that word, what the Greeks would do and what Mark did in this writing is they would take that phrase or that word out of the normal word order and bring it to the front of the sentence, something to the effect of, of what we would do by underlining with a yellow highlighter or with a red pencil. And so the Mark in his writing says, he, he, he takes the sentence from what it normally should be and he turns it around uh, and says, why are you so fearful? Do you still have no faith? This is what happens in this passage. My, my paraphrase of what Jesus is asking them is this. How is it that you... Of all people are afraid of this storm. Why do I paraphrase it that way? Because on that day, they had heard him teach about the importance of having faith in God. So how is it that after having heard what I've taught you throughout the course of the preceding day, why is it that you are still afraid? It's like him saying, if you have ears, maybe you ought to hear. I mean, he says that in the book of Revelation. Let him who has ears hear. You, you heard the teaching. It, uh, what, I, what I'm seeing here in, in the Lord's grade book, these, these disciples are coming up with a big fat F, and it doesn't stand for faith. 
they flunked the lesson that Jesus taught the day before. And their response to what Jesus does is even more amazing. Their response is is sheer terror because they ask the question, Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Who is this? Well, it's the one that some of you left your boats to follow. It's the one that you've already witnessed feed 5,000 men with five loaves and two fishes. It's the one that you've already witnessed giving sight to the blind. It's the one that you've already witnessed turning water into wine. And now Jesus does something that's equally amazing by calming the wind and the waves. And their response is, who is this? Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? And as much as we'd like to laugh at those disciples, and as much as we'd like to scoff and say, why don't they get it? I'm guessing that many of us sitting here in the light blue chairs can identify with what these disciples are feeling. Even though we've seen Jesus perform miraculous things, when we find ourselves in the midst of tough times or difficult storms, and Jesus comes along and does something miraculous to calm our storm or to take care of our issues, the question on our mind is, how did he do that? Who is this? Who is this that can do something that amazing? It, it would be the equivalent, and let me let's just use your imagination with me. You all know by now that, that particularly when I'm given short time to prepare a message, I rely on my imagination. So I'm sitting in my office yesterday morning, and I'm thinking, okay, suppose one of our southwest Kansas tornadoes sweeps through here this morning, and, and all of a sudden the entire foyer and the, the fellowship hall are ripped off And all of us sitting here in church were transfixed in fear. And upon seeing what has happened, I get up into the pulpit and I say to you, be still. Now what are you going to do? I'll tell you what you're going to do. You do the same thing I would do. You know as well as I that you would turn to the person next to you and say, the problem here is not the tornado. The problem is the guy standing up there in the pulpit. He's telling us to just be still. To calm down. Don't worry about it. But just suppose that when I said, be still to the storm, all of a sudden, birds started singing and chirping, and everything was just as calm as could be. What would you ask? Who is this pastor that we hired? How can that be? How... How can he just say, be still, and the, co- the storm comes to a stop? Well, if perhaps that's you, I want to give you three quick lessons about biblical faith this morning. Lesson number one, 
is that biblical faith always, always, always depends upon its object. What do I mean by that? Uh, Ron, I'm so glad to see you here this morning. Uh, matter of fact, i got to give you credit for giving me this illustration. One can be on thick ice. <laughs> for those of you who don't have Facebook, Ron was ice fishing at Mead Lake yesterday. Was it yesterday? Okay. One can have faith in thick ice and survive. One can also have great faith in thin ice and drown. Right? Faith always depends upon its object. Fortunately for Ron, the ice was thick enough that Ron was able to fish through the hole. What was it, nine inches thick? Is that what you said? It was thin enough that Carol wouldn't go out there. (laughs) It depends upon its object. What do I mean by that? The Bible never says believe. It always says believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The The Bible never says have faith. It always says have faith in God. Faith is dependent upon its object. Suppose that a group of us were, were going to fly from liberal to New York City. And, and let's suppose that, we, that before we leave, we, we decide we're going to save the church some money because they're paying for our flight. And so in order to do that, we find some unsuspecting individual running around the airport out there. And we ask him, fly us to New York City. And when that person says, where's New York City? We say, well, it's somewhere between Boston and Miami, but it's on the East Coast. He says, oh, no problem. I can get you there. I'll be glad to fly you to New York City. So he then walks over to what is supposed to be an airplane. And we look at it, and we discover that the fuselage of that plane is held together with bailing wire. A wing is damaged. The tail assembly is half gone. The prop is bent. And we inquire of that guy that we're asking to fly us, you've been up before, haven't you? And he responds, well, no, but I did stay at a Holiday Inn Express. (laughs) He may say, well, no, but I, I, boy, I'm fascinated with airplanes and air flight. Friends, if you get in that plane, that is not faith. It's foolishness. Because the object of your faith is absolutely worthless. Are you with me? In our scripture passage, look who it was that said at the beginning, let's go to the other side of the lake. Who was it? Very good. Again, whenever you ask a question in church, 67% of the time, the answer is Jesus. So you did well. It's Jesus that said, let's go to the other side of the lake. That's why when they see him calm the storm, 
And the disciples say, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Jesus says, why are you still afraid? I mean, folks, (laughs) what he said was followed by what he did. He didn't just say, let's go to the other side of the lake and Boy, hopefully a storm doesn't come up before we get there. No, he just said, let's go to the other side of the lake because he knew that he was in charge of the wind and the waves. And when the wind and the waves came, Jesus took care of it. The object of our faith will always authenticate his word. He will always make good on what he has told us in his word. He's trustworthy. We sang about it all morning. He's faithful. And when he is the object of our faith, you can count on it. That he's going to perform what he said he would do. So when he said, let's go to the other side of the lake, there's no doubt, there's no question in Jesus' mind, they're going to make it to the other side of the lake. Because he's in charge of the wind and the waves. Now, If you're going to go out on a boat on a sea where there's the likelihood of storms, it would be good to have confidence in the one who is the object of your faith to get you to the other side, right? The object of your faith. J.B. Phillips, the great Bible scholar, for lack of a better word, wrote in his book by the name, by the same name that the name of the book is Your God is Too Small. He said, I find that the more I get to know Jesus, the person, the more my faith begins to grow. And that happens as my faith and yours is placed in an object that is worthy of my faith. Lesson number one. Your faith always depends upon its object. Lesson number two is that faith is a developmental process. God's not just interested in solving every problem that we have. He's interested in developing our faith, and he knows exactly how to do that. How many of you would agree with me that your faith has been developed More in hard times than it has in good times. That's God. He's developing your faith. Most Christians know only two things. They know the cross and they know about the coming of Jesus Christ. They know that in the past he died on the cross. They know that in the future he's coming again. But the question is, what about the in-between? What about now? You see, salvation has what I like to think of as as three tenses to it. There's a past. We were saved from the penalty of sin on the cross as Jesus died. It has a a future. We will be saved from the ongoing presence of sin, and that's going to happen when Christ comes to take us home to be with him forever. Uh, There is, however, a third dimension. Not just the past, not just the future. There is the present. What about the present? We are being saved from the power of sin in the present. I have to ask myself the question, am I making any progress 
in my relationship with Jesus? Am I growing more in his likeness? Am I growing spiritually? I, I, I have to evaluate. How long is it that I've known the Lord? Well, for, for me, I grew up, I, I was in church the second Sunday of life here on earth. And by and large, that's all I've known. I do know that I gave my heart to Jesus as a nine-year-old. I, I, that's when I fully became consciously aware that just knowing about Jesus, just being a church member, is not what saves me. I needed a Savior just like any other sinner. And so I gave my heart to Jesus at the ripe old age of nine. And I have to look back. Am I still acting like a nine-year-old Christian? Am I still acting like a 21-year-old Christian? Am I still acting like a 45-year-old Christian? Or am I acting like a Christian who has been in a relationship with Jesus for 53 years? I think I've told you some, some of you the story. I was a typical rebellious teenager just like probably every one of us. Growing up in the church, there were these dear old saintly ladies who felt that their called and appointed duty was to tell Terry and his friends the things that they should do and the things that they shouldn't do. And the things that they shouldn't do, I showed them. I didn't want any little old lady telling me what I should do and what I shouldn't do. Unfortunately, that also filtered over to my, filtered over to my relationship with my parents. They would tell me what I should and what I shouldn't do. And they had a way of enforcing it that the little old ladies didn't have, but that's another story. Do you know what happened? Some of the things that those little old ladies told me I shouldn't be doing or shouldn't be involved in, I look back on my life now and I'm no longer involved in those things. You know why? Because I came to a point in my life where I decided I didn't need to be a part of those things. I didn't need to be doing those things. Now, when the little old ladies told me, my rebellion kicked in. But when the Holy Spirit impressed upon my heart, Terry, you don't need to be doing those things anymore. It was like he made it my idea. And I was okay with that. That's the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. He works in us and he changes us from glory to glory and transforms us into the person that God has created us to be. We develop our faith when we have no other way to look but up to the only object that is worthy of our faith. Friends, a follower of Jesus is not a person without problems. A follower of Jesus is one who has the problem solver living within them. Boy, I, I, I think I need to write that down as a great quote by your pastor. That's pretty good for having an hour of preparation. A follower of Jesus is not one who is free from problems, but one who has the problem solver living inside. That's what these disciples on this boat found out. They had the storm calmer. You know, I've looked through the Bible probably now hundreds of times, and I still can't find one verse of Scripture that promises that followers of Jesus will be exempt from problems. What I have found often, though, is that there are plenty of verses talking about being able to get through the problems with the problem solver, not being exempt from them. 
By now you know that I kind of have this philosophy that growth, whether it's physically or spiritually, always comes with the necessity of change. And change always causes pain. You have that favorite pair of shoes, the ones that are more comfortable than any other, but they finally wear out, and what do you have to do? You have to go get a new pair of shoes, and guess what? They're not as comfortable. Now, what I should have said was, as you get older, your feet grow. And so you have to have the new pair of shoes, and, and they have to get broken in. They may not ever be as comfortable as that old pair of shoes. What I'm saying is, growth comes by change, and change has pain involved. Pain has problems. There's no growth without tension. That's why the Apostle Paul gives us a great verse. He says to us in 1 Corinthians chapter number 10, and I probably will have to read it the way I learned it. I'll try to read it. He says, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to humanity. God is faithful. And He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but will with the temptation, there I go quoting it again from what I learned, but with the temptation he will also provide a way to escape so that you are able to bear it. You know, it's not unique to us that we have difficulties in our lives, in our marriages. It's not unique to us that some of us have a problem with our temper or that we have whatever it is that we have. These are all common to each of us. The ultimate test is the last part of that 13th verse that I just read to you. Do we hold up or do we fold up? God is able to provide with us a way by which we can bear up against the temptation. Do we hold or do we fold? Look at how the Apostle James puts it. He says this in James chapter 1. Maybe I better turn there. You see, when I have adequate time to prepare, I have all these verses in my notes. I don't have to go to them in my Bible, but not today. James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. James says, Consider it a great joy, my brothers, whenever you experience various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. God causes us to grow when our faith is tested, when we pass the test. And, and the, the best part about those, first, those verses 2 and 3 of James 1, James said, When? Not if. When they come. They are going to come. And yet we say to ourselves, well, that's really strange. It's not strange, friends. It's supernatural. Go just a a few pages over to the book of, or to the letter of of 1 Peter. 1 Peter says in in chapter number 4, I believe it is, chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, 
He says, dear friends, when the fiery ordeal arises among you to test you, don't be surprised by it as if something unusual were happening to you. And yet we say to ourselves, boy, that's strange. No, it's not. It's God trying to grow you. Lesson number three, biblical faith has its problems. Oops, didn't want to hear that. It has its problems. God's bring, God brings storms into our life because we, we don't develop our faith when things are calm. We develop our faith, by and large, when things are in a crisis. Is that not true? I, I, I spent the entirety of the first chapter of my book that I wrote back in 1999, which, by the way, we're going to be studying on Wednesday night, starting January 23rd. I spent the entirety of one chapter talking about the importance of preparing your life while things are calm. So that when things go crazy, you'll have the grace to get through it. That's God. He brings storms into our lives because we don't develop faith in the calm. We develop our faith in the crisis. You know, look at it this way. I don't know that, I don't remember that we did this in our house, but I've seen many houses where they've done it, and I've seen it on TV. You know how... how it, you may be, it may be in the kitchen or it may be in the doorway of your child's bedroom. You, you, you have these marks on the door that, that mark when the child is growing. Any of you had, ever do that? <laughs> uh, you, you know, it, it's there to check the child's growth rate. And as days and weeks and months and even years go by, you mark the change in that child's growth and you, you pencil the name and the date by, by the different stages of growth. Suppose that your child, just for fun, wanted you as a parent to mark your growth process. Don't you suppose, because you're an adult... Don't you suppose that after a while the child would notice that you're no longer growing? I, I, I give you that because what, what if your child asks you, why is it that big people stop growing? Well, it all depends what kind of growth you're talking about. That, that really is a thought-provoking question. Why is it that big people stop growing, particularly big people who are followers of Jesus? Could it be that they have a mild infection of Christianity and not, not a severe case? Oh, boy. I probably ought to move on after that. Take it a step further. Are you as a Christian growing old or are you growing up? After all, again, how long have you been a Christian? In that time, have you known him? Have you grown to know him more? Are you becoming more and more like Jesus, or have you plateaued? Oh, I'm saved. My ticket is punched for heaven. That's all I need to do. You'd be surprised how many people are like that. You know what? I want to become more like Jesus every day that I live. Every day. So that, I mean, I'm not going to be able to monitor that on a daily basis. But I, I'd like to think that I, this first Sunday of 2019, I can look back to the year 2018 and see some areas in my life that I'm actually more like Jesus than I was a year ago. 
I hit it on it last Sunday. I need to be nicer. So my goal for 2019 is I'm going to be nicer because Jesus is nice. Well, a year from now, you test me. Am I nicer or am I I not nicer? I want to grow. That's the point. You see, friends, what we need to understand is just getting saved is the start. It's not the end. Getting saved and, and... establishing a a new relationship with Jesus. Don't you want that relationship to become more intimate? Don't you want that relationship to become closer? Of course you do. You may be here this morning and be able to say, Terry, I, I, I don't have any problems right now. I got some news for you. They're on the way. They are. James said, when, not if. What do we often do? We get down on our knees and we say something like this. God, make me like Jesus. And the moment he goes to work, we say, what's going on here? What happened? Well, his answer to that question will always be this. Nothing's going on. I'm just answering your prayer. To be made more like Jesus. Musicians, would you come, please? Do you know how Jesus, God's Son, sinless and perfect, during the time He was a fleshly person just like you and I are, do you know how He learned obedience? Have you ever thought about that? He learned obedience by the things that He suffered. Mocked, ridiculed made fun of, bullied. He didn't deserve any of those things. But through all of those things, he obeyed God. That's what he wants from us. The object of our faith. Faith is a process, and it starts from the time from the time you exercise your faith for the first time until the moment that you no longer breathe earthly air. It's a process of becoming more and more like Jesus. And there are going to be times when your biblical faith even doesn't work. Don't worry about it. Your problem still exists. You got the problem solver. He can be trusted. Lord Jesus, such a simple message. A simple message probably botched from what your design for it could have been because of lack of adequate preparation. I don't know. But I'm praying that your Holy Spirit will convey the message to those that need to hear it this morning. Lord, I can't, I can't, even if I wanted to, I can't, I can't put my faith or my trust in riches 
I can't put my faith or my trust in, in, in worldly governments. All of those things are going to fail. All of those things are going to crash and burn. But Lord, I, I choose to put my trust in you because you are faithful. I know, God, that I'm speaking to a congregation of people many of whom are going through some tough times. Many of whom feel like the storm that they're in, whatever it may be, is going to overwhelm them to the point of exhaustion or complete collapse. And I know that, God, because there have been times when I myself have gone through those same kinds of storms. But I'm so thankful, Lord, that over the course of now 53 years of serving you, when I go through a storm, I think I'm starting to learn that I have the one who calms the storms living inside of me. I think I'm starting to, to figure out that what you said in your word is true. that I can trust in you. I can have my faith in one who is not shaken, one who does not change. And Lord, it's taken a while for you to get that through my head. And I just have a feeling, God, that there are people sitting in this room at this exact moment that still haven't gotten it through their head. That in the midst of the storm, in the midst of their problem, we turn to the problem solver. I'd like for you to bow your heads with me this morning. Close your eyes. You know, there are, as your pastor, there are some storms that I am somewhat aware of. There are others that I have no idea. And it's not necessary that I know, but what I would like to do is I'd like to pray with you. I'd like to pray for you. Prayer can do amazing things because the one I'm praying to is the one that can solve your situation. If you're here this morning and you're just going through it, whatever it may be, I want you to just raise your hand this morning. Yes, I see hands over on this side. Another one. Anywhere else? Yes, I see that hand. I see that hand. See that hand. Thank you for, for that step of faith. Now, I want us to stand together. And, and I, want you, I want you to maintain this attitude that you now have. Let's go ahead and stand, because I, I don't want anybody to be uncomfortable. When I ask the question, if you have a problem or an issue or a storm, whatever you're going through, to just raise your hand so that I can pray for you and so that you can tell Jesus that you're trusting in his ability and not your own. I want you to maintain that attitude because we're going to sing this song again. And I, my prayer is that after what you've heard me preach to you this morning is that this song has 
will take on an entirely different meaning perhaps than it did when you sang it earlier today. Let's sing it together. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus just to take him at his word just to rest upon his promise just to know thus saith the Lord Lord you said it we believe it Jesus Jesus how I trust him how I've proved him o'er and o'er Jesus Jesus precious Jesus oh for grace to trust him more I love that last line God give me the grace to trust you can I can I just hey you know what what time is it I got six minutes so I can ask this question will you, will you answer this question if I ask it how many of you like me when you get yourself in a mess when you go are going through the storm you try to get yourself out of it me and Melissa, we're the only ones. Come on now. How many of you try to get yourself out of it first? Lord, give us grace to trust you in the middle of our storm. Oh, let's sing it again, folks. Sing it like you mean it this morning. Jesus, Jesus. 